Let me invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 1. We're going to be finishing off uh, this book, our summer series, in the book of Esther uh, this afternoon, and we're going to be looking at chapters 8 through 10, but I thought it would be helpful for us if we just quickly uh, were to recap where we've been, what we've seen so far, and if you've been with us this summer for this series, I trust this will be a helpful reminder for you, and if you've not been with us, uh, my hope would be that this would help you to just kind of catch up with what's going on in this great story in God's Word. A little bit of context for the book. I'll just remind you that these events are taking place during the time of the Persian Empire uh, in the 5th century BC. The Jews have been exiled to Babylon. They've been released and they've been allowed to return to their homeland and yet most of them remain scattered across foreign lands after being more or less settled for so long. The glory days of the kingdom of Israel under King David and King Solomon are long gone. The Jews, we've seen throughout God's word, have been plagued with infighting, division, mostly wicked leaders. They've been conquered by foreign armies, taken captive, and like I said, yes, now they have been released, but the circumstances that they're living in are far from what they pictured as the chosen people of God. God seems so far away to the point where one might wonder, is he even there? The author of the book has intentionally put this consideration before us by loudly and clearly not including God's Uh, The word God, his name, even a single time in the whole ten chapters. But God is there. That's the whole point. Even when circumstances are more than a little bit desperate, even when God's people can't see clearly through to the other side, even when evil and wickedness are running rampant all around and the enemies of God seem to be getting the upper hand, God is there. He is still God. He is still seated on his throne. He he still governs the affairs of men and he still will keep every promise that he ever made. If you look down at chapter one, maybe we can just follow along if you have in your Bible some of the uh, paragraph headings that are put there by uh, those who put the, the translation or the additions of our Bibles together, we can just track through the story here and we see that the book begins with the king's banquet and, and just this great uh, pomp and circumstance, this, this 180 day long festival that King Ahasuerus has put on and, and really just to display his glory and then we see that uh, he invites Queen Vashti to come and, and put herself in front of the king's people. She refuses to do so. The king puts her out of his presence and he has to choose a new queen. And this is where Esther comes in. And Esther, an unlikely Jew, unbeknownst that is to the king of her heritage, is chosen to be the queen. And she comes into the royal palace in some rather disturbing ways. Her uncle Mordecai, after having raised her, tells her to just conceal her identity before the king. As he sits uh, outside the king's palace, Mordecai, we remember, uh, discovered a plot against the king where two of his servants were going to kill him and he makes this known to the king and and the king is uh, grateful and and makes sure that this doesn't happen. Both men were hanged on the gallows, it says at the end of chapter 2 and these events were recorded in the book of the Chronicles. Haman then rises to power as the right hand of the king and uh, as he walks through the um, gates of the city in in Susa, the citadel, he, he wants all to bow down to him, to give him honor and praise and yet Mordecai refuses to do so and Haman is enraged, he's furious and, and he decides to hatch an evil plot against Haman's people, the Jews, to have them annihilated. He comes before the king and and the king agrees to have an edict issued whereas all across the land the Jewish people on an appointed day would be wiped out. 
Mordecai comes to Esther and, and tells her, look, you need to do something. You need to go and you need to plead with the king on behalf of our people. She agrees to do so. She prepares a banquet. She takes all the necessary steps to properly approach the king and, and make her request known before him. She invites Haman even to a feast. And on the second day of the feast, she reveals Haman's wicked plot, his evil plan, and the king is enraged against him and has him hanged, just like Haman had wanted to do to Mordecai. The king, he honors Mordecai. He realizes, as we saw last week, that Mordecai is the one who saved him from destruction in those prior days. Haman raises to or sorry, not Haman, Mordecai raises to Haman's position in the kingdom. Haman is hanged on his own gallows and given the ring of the king. Chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, On that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And here, as we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 8, in one sense, there is a great resolution, isn't there? There's been some great reversals happening in the lives of Haman and Mordecai. But as monumental as This is, the the personal vendetta and vindication between these two individuals is really just part of the bigger picture. Esther and Mordecai haven't forgotten, and, and I trust we as the reader as well, we haven't forgotten about the edict. There's still a huge problem, right? What about the Jews who are throughout all the provinces? What about the royal edict. What we're going to see this afternoon is that there are still some more reversals to come and what we're also going to see is that these reversals lead to renewals for God's people. The word of God wants us to see that God is certainly not not there. And I want to first just look at this Plainly, as it's simply laid out through the narrative, I want us to just turn the pages some more and look at chapter, the rest of chapter 8 and 9 and 10. And then I want to take some time to consider how what we see here causes us to reflect on who God is and how we should respond to him. All right, so here's what we see first. We see God's people overturning the deceit of the enemy. Overturning the deceit of the enemy. Crafty Haman, because of his own ego and pride, has slyly gotten the king to agree to an edict that would bring about the obliteration of an entire race of people, uh, people whose name the king didn't even bother to learn. And he did this basically by tricking the king. He he doesn't tell him who these people are, only that they're a bunch of lawbreakers who are of no use whatsoever to the kingdom assuring him that there would be great financial benefit to the king if these people were to be wiped out, as if this were all for the king's sake, when really it was just to satisfy Haman's own prideful rage. But now, as we said, Haman is out of the picture, and and so what is Esther left to do? Well, she asked King Ahasuerus to revoke the edict that Haman devised for the destruction of her people. Look at verse 3. It says, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke 
the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king? For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? See, she's not content for just her and Mordecai to be safe. She's concerned for her people and and she wept for those who needed salvation. Picking up in verse 7, we see the king's response. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So what's going on here is, is the king, he, he can't exactly just cancel the previous edict. That would be against the law. We saw that earlier in chapter 1. Even the king himself cannot cancel out a previous edict or decree that he'd sent out. So what he does is he basically grants the request of Esther by allowing a second edict to be issued, also under his full authority, that would allow the Jews to take vengeance on those people who were attacking them. In verse 9, we see the king's scribe were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. We see here that everything in Haman's edict is reversed by Mordecai's and we see, I just want to address maybe what some of you may be thinking. I mean, children and women, is that really necessary? I mean, why is this included here? And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, for what I just said, everything in the edict needed to be completely reversed. And this is what was included in the original plot against the Jews. Secondly, what we're going to see in just a few minutes is that there's more going on here than first meets the eye. So the edict is sent, and upon receiving the news, there is what we might expect, much joy and gladness among the Jews and much honor for Mordecai. Drop down to verse 15. We'll see that Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And like I said, we see many Uh, reversals here. We began to see some last week. We see many more in the rest of chapter 8. Whereas previously Haman had the ear of the king to make his wicked request known, now Esther has the ear of the king to make her righteous request known. Whereas previously the king granted that an irrevocable edict could be written in his name and sealed with his ring that was for the destruction of the Jews... 
Now an irrevocable edict is permitted to be written in his name and sealed with his ring for the deliverance of the Jews. Whereas previously all the king's horses and all the king's men went out hurriedly into the capital and into the 127 provinces to make known the decree against the Jews, now the king's horses and all the king's men go out hurriedly to announce the decree that is for God's people. Whereas previously for God's people there was great mourning and weeping and sackcloth and ashes, now... There is joy and gladness and feasting and honor. For Mordecai, whereas he was previously under the sentence of death because of the self-exalting wannabe king who sought glory and fame in the royal city, he is now himself clothed in royal attire and honored the way that Haman so desperately craved for himself. And whereas people from other nations who before would never have wanted to be for a second mistaken as being a Jew for fear of their death, now they pretend to be Jews in order to preserve their life. What we need to see here is that everything has been overturned. The evil plot devised by the enemy of God's people is flipped completely upside down. And because their demise has been reversed, the Jews rejoice and have a holiday even before the actual day of their victory. But the day does come. And so I want you to note, secondly, this. We see God's people overcoming the design of the enemy. Overcoming the design of the enemy. The enemy's design has been crystal clear, but um, just... In case we need to see it, let's just turn back a couple pages in your Bible to chapter 3. Look at verse 13. It says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. The design of the enemy was to completely wipe out the Jewish population. But when the day arrives, when the appointed day comes, everything is reversed and the Jews are the ones to defeat their enemy. Look at chapter 9 in verse 1. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, that's the first one, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews, verse 5, struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. This victory, uh, in Susa in particular, is reported back to King Ahasuerus. And the king, in verse 12, he says to, to Queen Esther, he says, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. And then seemingly, incredulously, he says, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And then he turns to Esther and he says, Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. He's just handing out wishes now. And we see here more of the irony we've seen throughout this book. I mean, previously, every, every step had to be 
calculated every measure to approach the king had to, be, had to be just right in order to make just one simple request. He had to hold out the scepter. You had to be invited into his presence. Now he's turning to Queen Esther and he's saying, what else can I do for you? And Esther says, let this continue in the capital tomorrow and let Haman's sons be hanged on the gallows also. And the king commanded this to be done and it was done. And here's where we need to keep the, uh, the greater biblical story in view. See, if we just try to read sections of the Bible without a greater knowledge and a growing understanding of the scriptures on the whole, we'll often miss out on what's going on. We we need to uh, really lay hold of this a little later on when we come to some applications that I want to give for us. But here's an application uh, just now. Uh, we've got to be students of the Word. Amen? Amen. We need to know what God's Word says. We, we need to understand uh, the Old Testament so that we can better understand the New Testament. We, we need to understand books of the Bible so that when we come to other books of the Bible, we can see how there is a correlation and how it's really one book written by one God. And in this particular book, there's clearly a motif of reversals running throughout. And so everything needs to happen in reverse of Haman's wicked design. Furthermore, what we see is echoes of good and evil in battle. We, we, we see echoes of the struggle, the cosmic struggle between God and his enemies and, and the Amalekites, as was mentioned in an earlier message, were the first ones to attack God's people after they had been delivered from the land of Egypt. God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 17 and he talked about how these people, the Amalekites, would be one day wiped clean off the face of the earth. And then if you remember in Samuel chapter 15, King Agag and how Saul, King Saul, was supposed to obliterate Agag and his entire line, his entire family, men, women, children, and to plunder them, and, but, but not to touch any of their goods. And, and you remember these, these stories, these threads that run throughout Scripture, and then we, we came to, to the book of Esther, and we saw that Haman is a descendant of Agag. See, there's a greater picture being painted here. The enemies of God's people need to be wiped out here as a vivid representation of God's judgment and, and wrath upon evil and upon his enemies. This is a holy war. That is why no one can be spared. And that is why, by the way, three times throughout chapter 9, it is repeated that the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was not about getting rich. This was not about... Uh, personal, personally acquiring some, some wealth on the backs of, of the destruction of your enemies. This is about God showing vividly that he will destroy his enemies. Verse 16 of uh, chapter 9 and following go on to describe how in all the provinces the Jews defeated all those who hated them. 75,000 in number and how on the following day, the 14th of the month, in all the villages and towns, the people had rest and they celebrated with gladness and feasting and they even sent gifts to one another. <clears throat> We're also told that the Jews in Susa also did the same but on the next day, the 15th day, because they had fought for that extra day. And the Jews, they, they celebrated not only that year but also this became an official holiday for every year thereafter when another edict was sent out by Mordecai and Esther. And it's to this celebration that the text focuses on finally. And I just want to show you beginning in chapter 9 and verse 20, God's people outliving the destruction of the enemy. God's people clearly outlive the destruction that has been brought upon their enemies. Look at Verse 20 with me, it says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. 
obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And then the chapter will go on to recount uh, the story, basically, of what we've seen throughout the book of Esther and how these appointed special days were called Purim after the word pur, which in Hebrew means lot. You can maybe see why this word was fittingly chosen because Haman had cast lots to determine which day of the year he was going to have the Jews annihilated. And yet, their lot turned out much differently. The enemy's evil plan by the hand of the evil armies who hated the Jews was to destroy the Jewish people and go on living in the king's palace, having all the people bow down to him. Instead, it is he and his sons and the wicked armies who are the ones to fall when the people of God are the ones who go on living and celebrating after having destroyed their enemies. What a year it's been. It's been a year since the first edict was issued. The Jews have experienced terrifying threats of complete annihilation And then through many redemptive reversals, they experienced such a massive renewal so as to institute a new annual feast on the Jewish calendar to remember a day when they received deliverance and peace. We get to the end of chapter 9 after the explanation of Purim. And we read in verse 10, chapter 1, that King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And this, too, is kind of funny, isn't it? As for this king, it's as if he doesn't really actually care about anything that's taken place during these days concerning the Jews. It would seem that uh, when all is over, he's rather oblivious to the significance of what's taken place here. He just wants more tax. I thought maybe he has another one of these half-year feast in mind that he would like to throw for his own glory. Really, I I think this is, is put here to just show us that it doesn't really make a difference to him, and yet, in contrast, what a difference this has made to the Jews. Look at verse two, it says, "...in all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought, listen to this, the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And thus, the story concludes picture if this were a movie those two words the end coming up on the screen and the credits roll and and we think okay I guess they lived happily ever after not quite right this is not just some fairy tale or, or Shakespeare play although I do think that the best of both of those probably learned something from this masterfully told story in God's word. But it's more than a story, isn't it? It's genuine history, and because it's God's word, it's not just facts and figures, people and places of long ago where we read it and we say, well, that was an interesting bit of history. And carry about our day. No, we must ask, what does this mean For us, what can we glean from this account of reversals and renewals? Though he be forgotten or maybe feared that he is some 
how missing in action God is ever working to bring redemptive history to its appointed end. That's what we see in this book. Nothing happens apart from him. God is there. He's always there. And in the way that this book comes to a close, I want you to see this. We, we have a paradigm, a, a pattern. We, ha- we have a picture that foreshadows a greater reality, okay? It would be a mistake if we were to read uh, the, the book of Esther and we were to see um, what happens in the end, God reversing the fortunes of the Jews, and, and we were to think, well, I guess here's what it must mean. It must mean that uh, whenever God's people find themselves in a bind, God will make a way to deliver them, and they will be rescued here and now in this world. That is not what uh, we are to learn from this book. We are to see a picture. We are to see a paradigm of a greater reality. Through its silence about God, This book actually serves to reverse that silence and to shout aloud remarkable truths about him. And I've noted four of these for us to reflect upon with our time remaining this afternoon. The first one is this, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will fulfill his word. We're reminded by the renewal that the Jews experience here that God has never forsaken his people and he's not about to start today. I've been reading and rereading through this book and as I've done so, you want to know what came to my heart as as I read what happened in these last two chapters in particular as God reverses course and saves his people? I just thought, yeah, this is what God does. Right? This is what we see God doing. He makes provision for the preservation of his people. Sometimes miraculously as with the parting of the sea. Sometimes through normal means of providence like we've seen in this book. Or, or you might remember when King Joash was hidden by his aunt in the temple for six years to preserve, preserve the line of God's people. What we're meant to see in this book is that we're just... Reminded, there's no way that the Jews could be wiped out. There's just no possible way that it was going to happen. God has covenants to keep. The Jewish people had to be kept alive for the promised Messiah to come. From the seed of the woman, from the tribe of Judah, In the line of King David, the anointed one who would save his people from their sins. The Jews overcoming this way in the book of Esther reminds us that God is faithful and he will fulfill his word. And so, listen church family, we must trust in him. We must trust in him. That is our response We saw this not uh, too long ago, uh, but it's um, a particular favorite of mine, so I just want to read for you the words from Romans chapter 4. You remember Romans chapter 4, that um, great chapter talking about faith of God's people and, and how it holds up for us, Abraham, the father of our faith. It says these words in verse 20, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, some of the most important words, I think, for us in Scripture, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You believe that? Are you fully convinced that God will fulfill his word, that every promise he's made will come to pass? If you've trusted in Jesus, he's given you his precious promises, and they have to come. They have to come to pass. Nothing will get in the way. And so let me encourage you first to keep trusting in him, even when it feels sometimes like he's not there. Even when you can't see him. Even when it appears that um, he's not seeing over you. I mean... Pastor Ian read in um, the Psalms 
right? There are times in the Psalms when we, we think, where are you, God? He's there. He's always there when we can trust him. He's faithful. He's faithful. Secondly, and these, these have some overlap with one another, um, but see this, God is sovereign. He will direct the affairs of men. God is sovereign and he will direct the affairs of men. Even when it looks impossible, God can do whatever he wants. God is God. No man or or woman or government or edict is going to thwart him. And they've tried, haven't they? I mean, this wouldn't be the only time in, in history where the Jewish population has had an attempt out on their entire race. This happened to the church as well. This has happened to the Word of God, where the enemies of God and His people have, have tried to destroy the church and, and tried to put an end to the distribution and, and the, the posterity of God's Word, but it will not happen. God will direct the affairs of men and He will see to it that his plans are accomplished. We love what Mordecai said in chapter 4, right? Relief and deliverance will come one way or another. God will do it. Our lives are not governed by chance or lot, but by the divine will of the Lord our God. This edict that, quote, cannot be revoked. We'll see about that. God will put fear in the hearts of all the people. He will direct the the king's heart like channels of water. He he will put fear in the hearts of the officials and the satraps, the governors, all the royal agents. They will turn on a dime and accomplish God's purposes. God will use all for the good of his people. And so listen, church, hope, hope in him. Don't put your hope in anyone else. Don't put your hope in anything in this world. Put your hope in the sovereign Lord who is working all things for the good of those who love him. And if you want um, an idea, a suggestion, maybe for some further reading in God's word, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, let me just suggest to you to to go along as as a wonderful uh, companion to all that we've seen this summer in the book of Esther. Look at the prophet Isaiah, chapters 40 through 48. In these chapters, God is uh, declaring who he is. He is pitting himself against uh, all who would claim to be God, all the the false idols that man might make and, and worship, God is, is, it's called theology proper. He, he is describing who he is over and over again through these nine chapters. And you know what, what he says as a central argument in declaring that he and he alone is the one true God? He says, I'm the one who controls the course of history. I'm the one who determines the future. You show me someone else who can do that. There's no one. I'm God. And there is no other. And he is our hope. He is our hope. He is sovereign. He will direct the affairs of men. And I think before we move on, it's appropriate to also say here, though he is sovereign, as we've seen, we too must also act and just one, to, to reach back to chapter 8 for a moment, we saw that Esther wept on behalf of those who needed to be saved. And so a question we need to ask ourselves is this, do we? Do we have compassion and concern for the well-being of others and, and not just for ourselves? Do we pray for the lost? Do, do we tell them the good news of deliverance and hope? God directs the affairs of men and and in some mysterious way he he includes us and our actions and our voices in this as well. Third, what we see 
in these closing chapters and really in the book of Esther is that God is just. He will right every wrong. And like I said, we, we cannot look at this and say, well, I guess uh, every single time here in uh, this life, God is going to put a stop to the plots of his enemies. He will always uh, reverse the course of his people. P- his people will never uh, fully encounter trouble. That's, we know that's just not the case, right? Sometimes the evil plots of the enemy do go through. And this is also part of God's sovereignty. Uh, we need to continue to trust him and, and hope in him when this happens. We can't take this as a promise that the wicked plans will never be carried out. We, we need to remember, as is kind of easy to do, that we live in a broken world. This world is messed up. In the words of the psalmist in another psalm, he says, vileness is exalted among the children of man. And as that was true in his day, it is true in our day. We see it all around us, those in power, many who are leading Schools, institutions of learning, many other organizations. It's as though the majority of ideas and and so-called values that are being broadcast from every medium are opposed to Christ and his church and his word. And like the psalmist, sometimes we, we say, God, why do you hide your face? Are you there? And we're reminded through the book of Esther that everything that the wicked have planned will one day come to an end. God's enemies will be put to shame. They scoff and mock and sometimes they even kill God's people, but ultimately, in the end, God's people are delivered and they will receive the honor. The forces of darkness can never annihilate God's people. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we read of how the enemies of God assemble in battle. They assemble for battle, I should say, to rage against the Lord. They gather together the forces of of darkness and, and they're ready for this great cosmic battle. But what we see is the battle is over before it even starts. There is actually no battle at all. God just slams them down into the lake of fire. God will destroy his enemies. He will right every wrong. He will preserve his people. So we must wait on him. Wait on him, church. Wait for the righteous judge. In Psalm 12 and verse 5, God says these words. He says, because the poor are plundered, Because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And this is our hope. This is what we're waiting for. And really, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The Christian life is really about waiting well, isn't it? It's about being a good waiter. As we wait for the promises of God to one day be finally and ultimately fulfilled. And finally, what I want us to see is this. God is unfailing. He will make all things new. He will make all things new. We have here at the end of the book of Esther a picture of God's redemptive power. But it's most certainly incomplete. Right here as it stands in Esther Chapter 10, the people, they're celebrating, they're feasting. They're getting ready to uh, commemorate this day or these two days on an annual basis. But their redemption is far from complete. We see their renewal here and yet we long as they must have longed for something greater. Like we said, Esther does not end with they lived happily ever after. 
just like Haman, after he was executed at the close of chapter 7, we saw a significant issue, a very important issue was resolved, but there still remained the problem of the edict. So even now, as the book ends, the issue at hand is resolved, but there still remains the ultimate concern. For the Jews who are celebrating the days of Purim, consider their circumstances. They're still not in the promised land. <clears throat> They're still not dwelling with God. They've been lifted from the dirt, but they're still not seated with princes at the king's table. They've escaped the edict of Haman. But the edict of God still stands. They need to be set free from the law of sin and death. And here they have Mordecai, a respected leader, a man who is for them and for their peace, but he's not the promised one, right? He's not the one who would redeem them from the curse of sin. We see this king, this, this, he's almost a joke of a king, right? They need a righteous king who will rule and reign in glory forever. They need a savior who will atone for their transgressions and raise the dead to life to be with him in his eternal kingdom where there is no longer enmity with God and the threat of the next army to come at enmity with them. And it's in this way that the book of Esther points us to Jesus. Like Haman and, and like we saw today, his ten sons were hung on a gallows, Jesus was hung on a tree, cursed in our place. He bore our transgressions. He carried our iniquities. The judgment of God was poured out on him for our sake. He died and was buried, but he rose again, defeating death so that we would have true renewal, true life, everlasting. The renewal that the Jews experienced in these first days of Purim, they foreshadow the ultimate renewal spoken by the Lord. Throughout his word, one place in particular in, in the prophet Jeremiah, these words are recorded it is God speaking. He says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. And Jesus comes and he says that this at last will fully happen when he returns a second time. There is a day coming. Right? We see the peace that the people experience here and we know we're reminded and we're meant to look past this to the greater reality that there is a peace coming that transcends temporal peace and relief from trouble here and now when promised everlasting peace will come. There's a day coming when the voices of heaven will declare, as in Revelation chapter 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And on that day, there will be a great feast for the people of God, the greatest feast of all, the feast to which all other feasts point, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there will be a celebration on that day, as we read about in Revelation chapter 21, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and the loud voice from the throne says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Listen, are you going through mourning? Is there sadness in your life? There's a day coming, promises the Lord where every tear will be wiped away, where we will be with him in his glorious presence with fullness of joy for all eternity. 
Verse 5 in Revelation chapter 1 says that he who was seated on the throne, he said these words, Behold, I am making all things new. He is unfailing. He will make all things new. So let us rejoice in him. Let us see the rejoicing that is happening here. And let us be reminded that we too must rejoice in him. Let your mourning be turned to gladness. And and I know that we go through some difficult, really painful things, trials in this life, sometimes at the hands of God's enemies, sometimes it's our own sin. But we need to remember that God redeems us from both our enemies and from our sin. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. He will make all things new. And gladness will fill our hearts finally and fully on the day of our great celebration. And we have so much more through trusting in Jesus Christ to delight in than those who were delivered from Haman's edict. And listen, if you're here with us today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we're so glad that you've come. I want you to know that God's word says that you're invited too. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. He, he will, in, in no way will he cast out a single soul who comes to him. There's a way to identify with God's people, and it's not by pretending to be a Jew like we saw in this story. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust that he is the Savior that you need for the forgiveness of your sins that he died and rose again, and that you too might have everlasting life, assurance of hope because of what he did for you. It can all be yours. You too can rejoice with the church of Jesus Christ that this promised renewal can be for you as well. In this world, we too are strangers and exiles in a foreign land. The book of Esther calls us to trust the Lord even when it seems like he's not there. God will overturn the deceit of the enemy. He will overcome the design of the enemy. He will cause his people to outlive the destruction of the enemy. He will make all things new. He is faithful. He is sovereign. He is just. He is unfailing. And so church, put all your trust and hope in him and joyfully wait for him because he is most definitely there. Let's pray.